Romans chapter 12 this morning is where the Lord has led us. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will help you out. Romans 12, back after a week away, and man, that week away, last weekend was such a blessing. I cannot remember a Sunday service I've enjoyed more in a, in a long time. The Lord met us so, so powerfully. But at the same time, it's a blessing to get back in Romans because the Lord has been meeting us here in this letter so richly, so consistently. Romans 12, because it's been a minute, Paul began at the top of the chapter three weeks ago in, in our study. He began talking to us about worship. How does he get on that subject? Quick review. Paul opens the chapter saying, therefore, which, which cues us in on, on how he gets to where he's gotten and, and, and where he's going to push off from. Therefore, he's been speaking up to this point for 11 chapters for the whole letter about who we are in Christ because of the cross. For 11 chapters, he's been laying out a systematic theology of salvation. He's talked about justification and adoption and, and his presence in our lives, our acceptance in the beloved, our eternal security and, and, and the eternity that Jesus purchased for us, all because of the cross, all because of God's grace. Not even a little bit because we deserved it, but because Jesus loved us and loves us. Therefore, Paul says in verse 1, because of all of that, in appreciation of it, in recognition of it, in response to it, present yourselves, he says, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Jesus died for us. Live for him, Paul is saying. Let God have your life. Let him use your life. Let him live his life through you, which is, Paul says, our reasonable service. That's what it says in the New King James. Most other translations render that, which is your spiritual worship. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, Paul, I, I get that. I'm down with that. How do I do that? Glad you asked, Paul says, verse 2, the way we present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, the way we worship is by not being conformed to this world, but instead by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, by putting on what Paul says elsewhere, by putting on the mind of Christ. The way to worship, Paul says, is to think like Jesus, to let God the Holy Spirit reprogram our minds to think like he thinks, so that we choose what he would choose, believe what he knows to be true, living fully and completely for him. Okay. I think I'm tracking, Paul. So how do I do that? Live according to God's word. Paul doesn't say it, but it's implicit in what he does say. Live according to God's word, brought alive, illuminated by his Holy Spirit. Test every thought in light of his word. Take every thought captive and test it against his word. Every idea, every decision, every action. What does God's word say about it? What is the character of God revealed in his word suggest to us? What does it point us to? 
What does it call us to? And over time, as we make that our practice, as we commit to that habit, God will replace our worldly ideas, our carnal desires, with divine truth and godly desires. It's the same idea Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 10, taking every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. It's the same idea he talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, instead be renewed in the spirit of your mind by putting on the new man, which was created according to God. Putting off, putting on. Putting down, taking up. Okay, I think that makes sense. Can you give me some examples, Paul? Can you ground that in a for instance for me? Paul's accommodating. Verse 3, that's what he does. He, he says, this is what putting on the mind of Christ looks like. This is what happens when we deny self and serve God. For example, he says, verse 3, the Christian doesn't congratulate himself or herself for being a Christian doesn't think highly of themselves for being saved. It was God the Father who decided to save us. It was the Holy Spirit who called us and drew us. And it was Jesus who made it possible for us to be saved. What did we bring to the party? What did we contribute to our salvation? Yeah, our sin. The sin that made our salvation necessary. What did we bring? The hammer and the nails. So think soberly, Paul says. Get serious, he's telling us. Put off arrogance. Put on humility. And in particular, verse 4, he says, don't go comparing yourself and your calling and your gifting to that of other believers. Don't go measuring yourself by how God uses you. My spiritual gift is better than yours. My ministry is bigger than yours. My calling is more important than your calling. That's not what the Christian life is all about. That's old thinking, worldly thinking, self-centered thinking. There's no place in the body of Christ, Paul says, for trying to prove or even for believing that any of us are bigger, better, faster, stronger based on our spiritual gifts. I'm a teacher and you're just a helper. I'm clearly better. You're back in the booth. I'm up on the platform. I'm in charge here. I serve people food and you just clean up after us. <laughs> I win. Why is that? Who gave us our gifting and our calling? Who put us into the ministry? Oh yeah, Jesus. The Christian life isn't about getting people to look at us to think well of us and the spiritual gifts we've been given, they aren't for us. We have them, why? To glorify God and to bless others. So the proper focus isn't comparing them. My gift's better than your gift. No, it's in using them, whatever they are, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, helps, giving, leadership, any of them. It's not about... Paul is saying, it's not about you and me anymore. It's about God and others. We're putting this off. We're putting this on. It's, it's not about the world's wisdom about how to get ahead, how to get noticed. It, it's, all, it's also not about sometimes what our flesh wants, which is to hide in the shadows and not be noticed. 
Those are two sides of the same coin. They seem like opposites, but they're not. Because they're both about us. And what we want. And what we think is good. No, time to reprogram our thinking, Paul says. Trying to put, time to put on the mind of Christ. It's not about us anymore. It never was, but now it really needs to not be. It's not about us. It's about God and others. And about letting the Holy Spirit use us to love God and love others. It's about saying, here I am, Lord. Use me to bless you. Show me how to serve others. Because when we do, let's pull it back together. When we do, we worship. That was two weeks ago. That was Paul's first, for instance. His first plugging into that template he gave us in verse 2. The putting off and the putting on. The not this, but that. No longer about self. Now, about God and others. That was two weeks ago. So, so review over, push play. As we pick up this week, Paul's going to do what he does. Paul's going to do what, what we've seen him do a dozen times already in this letter. He's going to respond to his reader. The person reading this letter, who's heard what he said before, uh, so, so far, and has a question, has an objection. The person who's reading the letter and has a response. It's no longer about self. It's about God and others. Paul, I'm already doing that. You don't have to tell me that. I'm all about that. My life is already about love. I know you think so, Paul's going to say beginning in verse 9. I know you want to believe that. But I think that we both know that deep down, if we poke around a little, if we rummage around in your heart just a bit, we'll find some ways that Maybe that's not completely true. Ways that you could be loving better. Ways that you could be given over more completely to loving God and loving others. Let love be without hypocrisy, Paul says in verse 9. Let love be real. Let it be sincere. Not love plated, but love through and through. It's not about the appearance of love anymore. It's not about people thinking that you're loving, having an impression of you that's loving. No, it's about the reality of love. It's about a love that loves fully and completely without holding back or compromise. Put off the old thinking, the worldly thinking, the carnal thinking, the me, myself, and I way of looking at the world. Replace it with God and others thinking. Make your mission to love people, Paul says in verse 9. And make it your mission to love people with love that's actually love. How do I do that, Paul? We'll continue, if I can get my Bible open. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what's good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, verse 10. And honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, blessing those who persecute us, blessing and not cursing. And, and we'll pause there. Paul, Paul's, Paul's got more to say, but we'll pause there because that's already a lot. And ladies, you know that that's a lot, because you took a whole year last year just to study that handful of verses. 
and to unpack all of the ways that Paul is challenging us just in that handful of verses. All the way that Paul is challenging us to put off our old ways of thinking and to put on the mind of Christ. The first one was pretty straightforward. Abhor evil, verse 9, cling to good. Well, that's, that's easy, Paul. I'm good on that. What else do you got? I've, I've, I've got that one. What's next? Hang on, Paul says. Because he's, he's not talking about recognizing that there is such a thing as good and evil. And he's not even talking about acknowledging that there's good and evil and good is better. Because most people know that. Most, most of the world wouldn't argue that. So we know Paul's not talking about that. He's saying abhor evil, hate it, reject it, renounce it, run away from it, remove it from your life. Put it off and put on good, cling to it, pursue it, seek it, prioritize it at all costs. That's a higher standard, right? That's a higher calling. And that's a calling that forces us to ask, among other things, how much do we hate the things that God hates? Abhor is a big word. That's a strong word. Do we hate evil? Do we hate sin? How much do we hate sin? Have we decided once and for all to put it off? To agree with God about it? To want no part of it? Or are we still dancing around with it? Are we still flirting with it? Questioning, has God really said about this sin or that sin? Wondering, is it really all that bad? Asking, who's it actually hurting? Rationalizing, I could be doing things way worse. No, says Paul, to worship is to hate sin. And whatever place sin is occupying in our lives were to take sin out and put good in. Replace sin with what's good. Replace sin with who's good. Whatever we're depending on sin for, whatever role it's playing in our lives, let Jesus do that. He'll do it better. Are we relying on sin for comfort? To, to, to assuage loneliness, to give us a sense of completeness or control. Whatever we think we're getting from sin, Jesus will do it better. It's not enough to acknowledge that evil exists, verse 9. It's not enough to recognize sin, even, even to confess sin. That's a good start, but worship takes it further. Worship renounces sin. And replaces sin with the things of God. And obviously there's a lot more we could say about that, but let's keep going because Paul keeps going. Hate sin, but as he continues verse 10, he starts talking to us about loving people. And loving people in an active sense. Not hating people. Not even not caring about people, but loving people. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Paul's point here, similar to his point in verse 9, is that love is a verb. It's not a feeling. It's not inert. It's active. It takes initiative. Love 
Love loves. Love loves. And Paul says this because he realize, he knows how we are. And he realizes we can make it through verse 9 and still think we're doing okay. Still, still be convinced that we're loving God and loving others because, well, I'm not committing any obvious sins. I'm not lying, cheating, stealing, raping, pillaging, murdering, none of those. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, I'm doing okay. Perfect scorecard. Except that's not worship. Because again, the world recognizes those boundaries, mostly. The world would say, yeah, those crimes are off limits, usually. The world agreed way before Jesus that, that it's wrong to do anything to your neighbor that you wouldn't want your neighbor to do to you. Jesus announced a new standard, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Do you notice the difference? It's no longer passive. It's active. It's intentional. It's not just about avoiding wrong, because that usually translates into sitting back and watching others do wrong and judging them. No, it's not about avoiding wrong. It's about doing good. Taking the initiative to seek good out and make it happen. And so we get verse 10. Don't settle for not hating. Don't congratulate yourself for being inert or indifferent. Take the initiative. Reach out. Love. I was watching a debate go back and forth online. I don't know. I think it was a couple months ago. A couple people, one of them just innocuously posted, hey, I visited a church. It was really cool. This, I like this. I like this. No one welcomed me, which kind of bummed me out. You know, it didn't seem loving. But other than that, it was good. And someone immediately comments, well, did you introduce yourself? Did you reach out? You're a mature believer. Did you take the initiative? I think you're not loving. And then it's off to the races. <laughs> With everybody firmly convinced that something is going to get solved by arguing about it online. But, but all kinds of people weighing in. You're not loving. You're not loving. Well, you weren't loving first. Whose job is it to go first? To initiate. Is it the new person visiting a church? Let's just sit in this example for a second. Is it the new person visiting the church or is it the new church they're visiting? Yes, says Paul. If you're a Christ follower, you go first. Whether you're visiting or being visited, the choreography doesn't matter. Love goes first. Love initiates. Love, why, why do we love God? Because he first loved us. He initiated. Love goes first. And Paul keeps going, verse 12. Love keeps going. Love keeps loving. It doesn't try once with a big flurry of activity and then stop and hang back to see what happens. Love doesn't give up. It doesn't stop. It doesn't fail. It doesn't run out. No, verse 12, it rejoices in hope, it's patient in tribulation, it continues steadfastly in prayer. 1 Corinthians 13 vibes, right? Because Paul wrote that letter about a year earlier. Same kind of theme here. Love suffers long and is kind, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He's saying much the same here. And, and he says it knowing what we're going to say. 
He's putting that out there, knowing how we're going to respond. Yeah, Paul, my pastor read those verses when he married us, and I try to do that every day. I try to love my wife exactly that way. I get that that's what marriage is. I'm going after it, Paul. Great. How about absolutely everybody else in your life? That's what Paul's hanging out there. Do you love everybody that way? Do you love everybody that way all the time? Are you loving people that way over time? With endurance, not giving up. Love that's without hypocrisy, Paul is saying, is love that's, love that's, love, love that's sincere is also love that's patient. In long suffering, and, and that implies all kinds of things. Patient love doesn't jump to conclusions. It extends the benefit of the doubt, allows for the possibility that I'm the one who misunderstood, misstepped, messed up. First wedding I ever did. I jumped all over the worship leader at the end of the ceremony because it was my first wedding and I wanted to get it right. And besides, look at these beautiful kids on the most important day of their life. And you just, you couldn't help yourself. You had to, yeah, I got the order of service wrong. And he was patiently waiting, patiently loving me, waiting for me to just run out of, before he said, um, what about that? See, patient love doesn't jump to conclusions. Patient love, patient love doesn't assume guilty until proven innocent either. Patient love assumes positive intent. Because sometimes we do err, sometimes we do offend, sometimes we do injure. Patient love starts off the conversation assuming that whoever hurt me wasn't doing it on purpose. When Juan was living with me, he wasn't trying to shrink my favorite sweater. He was trying to help do laundry. He didn't see the setting on the dryer. He missed. He missed badly. But he didn't do it intentionally. His goal wasn't to hurt. It was to help. And that counts for something. Patient love, here's another one, doesn't avoid hard conversations. Doesn't sit and stew in frustration. As people say, you need to tell him he hurt you. You need to tell her that bothered you. No, it wouldn't make any difference. I'm just going to sit here and, you know, <sighs> sigh a lot. <laughs> now, patient love has the conversation. Patient love tries, because Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, that's what love does. Go to your brother and sister. If it doesn't work, bring one or two and try again. If it doesn't work, eventually involve church leadership, but keep trying. Patient love has the conversation and has it again. Because one of four things is going to happen. Either they're wrong and they're going to repent. You're wrong and you need to repent. You're both wrong and you both need to repent. Or we keep working until unity. Patient love doesn't give up when times are tough. It hangs in. It presses on when life is hard. It presses on especially when people are hard. When loving people seems just impossible. Paul talks about patience and tribulation. I don't know what you think of when you hear tribulation. Maybe you go revelation. Monty was reading from revelation this morning. And maybe you hear tribulation and you're thinking meteors and plagues and, and, and giant scorpions and, and, and rivers turning to blood. I, I think the greatest tribulation in life is when people let you down. That's, that's the hardest for me. When you love and you love and you love and you love, or at least you try to, and people turn around and hurt you. 
turn around and burn you. And when they do, because they do, because this world is this world and we are who we are, the world tells us, well, that's it, cut bait and move on. Don't let, don't let them have another bite of the apple. The world says when you're burned, you move on, you give up, you cut bait. Love says, no, you don't give up, you look up. Good Friday this year. We, start, we, we jumped right into it. We went right to the cross. But before the cross, we know, came Peter's denial. Before Peter's denial, we know, came Judas's betrayal. And the thing I marvel at, I've talked about this before, but it just, it grips me. The thing I marvel at about both of those things, they happened even though Jesus was loving those two guys perfectly. Jesus loved Peter. He served Judas flawlessly. And Peter still Petered and Judas still Judas. But, but expand the vision even more than that. Jesus loved him perfectly knowing Peter was going to do what he did and Judas would do what he did. Knowing they were going to let him down, knowing that they were going to hurt him, he still washed their feet. He still had dinner with them. In fact, for three years leading up to that, he poured into them. And after that, after Judas betrayed him, after Peter denied him, after they hurt him deeply, Jesus still went to the cross. In fact, after all of the disciples turned their backs on him, except John, after all of his disciples turned their backs on him, Jesus gave his back to the whip. Gave his life for their souls. The fact that the disciples loved Jesus poorly, and in one case not at all, the fact that they loved Jesus poorly didn't keep him from loving them perfectly and didn't keep him from giving everyone who wanted it a second chance. How do we love like Jesus? We don't give up, we look up. And when people don't love us well, we love them even harder, even better. And wherever we end up relationally, if sin separates us, if circumstances distance us, if we don't have any other way to love them, if we have to love them from a distance, we still can. We can still pray for them. If sin or circumstances closes the door to loving them any other way, God can still reach them. God can still love them. God can still save them or revive them. And love, listen, love wants that. Love prays for that. Even if we've been hurt. I'd say especially if we've been hurt. How is that fair? It's not. Well, if they've hurt us, why should we love them? Because love loves. Love that's only given in exchange for love received isn't love. That's a contract. That's reciprocity. That's a quid pro quo. It might be fair. It's not love. Love gives with no expectation of getting back. Love doesn't give what's fair. Love, is, love doesn't even give what's more than fair. You gave me this much, I'm going to give you just a little bit more so that I can say that I love you. No, love doesn't give more, it gives most. 
It gives all. And love doesn't stop giving. Love doesn't stop serving. Love doesn't stop loving when it gets let down. Love pushes through tribulations, verse 12. Keeps distributing to the needs of the saints, verse 13. Remains, same verse, given to hospitality. Why? Because it's not about Christ followers. It's about Christ. Big phrase in evangelical circles these days. Church hurt. Refers to people who've been wounded. Genuinely wounded. Emotionally, relationally, spiritually. In the house of God. Simple phrase. Church hurt. Two syllables. Pointed to really deep, really complicated pain. And there's a lot of people, especially in a, in a community like ours, where a lot of people have spent a lot of time in a lot of different churches. There are a lot of people who have left church disillusioned, damaged, despairing. And, 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 I, and I know that I'm talking to some in this room. So I'm going to say something, and I'm going to try to say it really carefully. I'm going to try to say it in love, and... and Please hear me carefully and, and in love. To those who have been hurt in the house of God, those like Jesus who have been wounded in the house of his friends, don't let your experience with people who weren't following Christ keep you from following Christ. Don't let people who weren't loving and serving him keep you from loving and serving him. Don't let people who followed him badly keep you from loving and serving people well. The most natural thing in the world, and I use that phrase on purpose, the worldly thing, the natural idea, what our flesh insists upon when we're hurt is to put walls up, activate shields, all defenses engaged. When we're hurt, especially in a place where we were supposed to be safe, it is natural to shut down and to shut people out because we don't want to be hurt again. So we withdraw. For some, they believe, but they don't attend. For some, they attend, but, but they don't engage. They don't participate. For some, well, I'll participate, but I'm not going to initiate. I'm not going to reach out because I'm not going to be hurt again. I'm just not. Paul's telling us this morning, reach on anyway. He's not promising you won't be hurt again. In fact, quite the opposite. It's quite certain that we will. That's what it is to follow Christ. But he's encouraging us, reach on anyway. Let people into your life anyway. Do it wisely. Do it prayerfully. But don't stop loving. Now let's pause. Because the wisely and the carefully part is really important, and please don't miss that. Paul is not saying, go right back to the same people who hurt you so they can hurt you again. No, there might be people you need to distance yourself from. There might be a church that you need to break fellowship with. There might be believers 
individuals or, or tribes that you need to love from a distance and only from a distance in order to keep following Jesus wisely and well. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't do what we need to do to get safe and stay safe and, and heal. Break fellowship, if necessary, with a Christ follower. Do not break fellowship with Christ. Don't stop loving and serving his people, meeting the needs of the saints, serving strangers. That's what hospitality is. Do it in fellowship with other Christ followers, real Christ followers, true Christ followers. How can you tell? Because they're loving and serving you at the same time that together you're loving and serving others, engaging with others, blessing others, worshiping God through your ministry to others. Don't give in to fear. And verse 14, don't give in to hate. Don't curse your enemies, love your enemies. Because anyone can hate. It's easy to stay bitter. But when we do, and you know this, who do we hurt? When we stay bitter, who gets hurt? The people who hurt us? They probably don't know, and if they know, they probably don't care. If we don't forgive, we hurt ourselves. We take poison and wait for the other person to die. And while we're waiting, it's our ministry that's limited. It's our love that's dampened. It's God's worship that's quenched. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Bless and do not curse. Doesn't automatically mean go back and serve with those same people. Not without repentance. And probably not with, without counsel and support. Bless those who persecute you doesn't automatically mean go back. It means don't let them hold you back. We'll talk more about forgiveness and repentance and vengeance and reconciliation next week. Paul's got more to say. Glance down to verse 17, verse 21. He's not done. But he's already said enough I'm sure, to have us saying, Paul, how? <laughs> how do I do this? You've laid a lot on me this morning, Paul. How do I love first? How do I press on? How do I give the benefit of the doubt and assume positive intent and have these hard conversations? How do I keep looking up when people let me down? How do I, how do I look past what's fair? How do I keep my focus on Christ even when I've been hurt by Christ's followers? How do I keep reaching out instead of shutting down? How do I keep loving my enemies when cursing them into the ground is all I want to do? How, Paul? Those are good questions. Those are fair questions. And I'm pretty sure a big part of why Paul is writing this letter is to provoke these questions. He's clearly writing to challenge us. He's writing to challenge a group of believers a group in Rome, a group in Wichita, Christians who are pretty sure they're loving pretty well, inviting us to look harder, to dig deeper, to consider whether there's still room for growth. And Paul's point, part of it at least, there's always room for growth. We're going to keep putting off the old man and putting on the new. We're going to keep taking every thought captive and wrestling it in submission 
We're going to keep being transformed until we see Jesus face to face. Our worship in the meantime is what we sang about before service, actually. Our worship is letting God mold us, shape us, conform us more and more into his image. But it brings us back to the question of how. How do we cooperate with God in this process so that when we see Jesus face to face, we resemble him as closely as possible? The answer is we go back to the beginning of the chapter. Go back to verse 1 where Paul started us going down this road, where he exhorted us our response to the cross should be to worship God with our lives, and where he informed us the way to do that is to let God reprogram our minds so that we see what he sees. Think like he thinks, love like he loves. And the way that we do that is by letting the Holy Spirit correct our thinking. Align our thoughts with his thoughts. Speaking to us through his word, the way he has this morning. Challenging us not to be complacent, not to coast into the finish line, not to think that we're at the finish line. But to press on, reach higher, love better. But what else does God's word tell us? If the key to this whole exercise is being transformed by the renewing of our mind through God's word, what else does God's word tell us? Where else does our thinking need to be corrected? The things that God is calling us to do, here's the answer. He will do. We don't have to do it alone, not anymore. Which is good because we can't. Let God's word tell us what to do, Paul is saying this morning. Let the word of the Lord tell us what to choose, tell us how to live, but let it also remind us God who shows us what to do will do the things he shows us. Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He, just, he doesn't just tell us what love is. This is love. Here's who to love. Here's how to love. And I want to sit back and watch you struggle and probably fail. Does that sound like our Lord? No, God tells us what to love, uh, what love is, who to love, how to love, and then he loves. Present your bodies, Paul says in verse 1. Give God your lives. Why? So he can put his love in you. So that he can love people through you. He, he won't do it without us. He could, but he won't. Sanctification requires our cooperation. If God, if God compelled it, if it wasn't our choice, it wouldn't be worship. But when we're willing, when we're willing to be used, when we're willing to love, God is able, he is so, so able to love. When we are willing, he is able. Warren Wearsby says we are not manufacturers we're distributors. We don't have to replicate or duplicate or fabricate or imitate love. We just got to choose it. We just, we just have to choose love, choose to love. And God will give us all we need. He'll give us love to spare. He'll give us love to share. The key is we got to ask. We got to remember to ask. If we do, if we ask, if we seek, he will transform our minds. He will make our lives a worship offering. How do we remember to ask? 
How do we cooperate with God? Suggestion as we wrap up. Seven parts to it. Part one, keep this passage in front of you for a month. The ladies studied through this passage, like I said, for a year. And at the end of the year, I heard words like transformative and revolutionary and life-changing. Start with a month. Keep it in front of you. More than that, keep it where you'll trip over it. Put a post-it note at your workstation. Make it the screensaver of your desktop or the wallpaper of, of your phone so that you're, you're going to keep coming face-to-face -face with it whether you remember to or not. And when you do, here's number two, read it in its entirety, beginning to end. Don't just recognize, oh yeah, I remember that. No, read it word by word. Love is without hypocrisy. What does that mean? Abhor evil, cling to good. What are you saying, God? Let the Holy Spirit remind you. Read the whole thing. Let God speak to you. And, and let God show you, here's number three, a word or a phrase to meditate on. Might be a different one every day. He might give you the same one a few days in a row. But, but what does this mean? Chew on it. Consider it. What does it mean? What does it mean to you, God? What should it mean to me? And here's number four. What do you want me to do with it, with what you're showing me? What's the application? What am I putting off here? What am I putting on here? What is there in this right now, today, for me? And whatever it is, number five, decide you're going to do it. Even before you start meditating, decide whatever God shows me, I'm going to do it. Whatever God reveals to me, I'm going to cooperate with him in it. Decide that you want to because the Holy Spirit won't do it without you. Want to, get to, going to. And ask the Holy Spirit, number six, ask the Holy Spirit to meet you. And supply faith, wisdom, strength, whatever form his power needs to take for you to love the way he's calling you to love. The power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in us to do what? To love. Call upon it. Ask God to supply it. He will. He wants nothing more than to love through you. If you commit to those th six things daily, if, if, if we say, this is going to be part of my devotional life for the next month, if we commit to those six things daily, I promise the seventh thing will happen. Our lives will be even more of a living sacrifice because we will be more committed to love and more capable of love. Our lives will be more characterized by love and will be even greater and greater and greater worship offerings as we love. Father, we wouldn't know the first thing about love if you didn't love us first. Thank you that you did. Thank you that you do. Thank you that everything that we've, we've talked about and considered, everything you've shown us this morning is how you love us. Continue revealing your heart, Lord. Continue pouring into our heart. Continue healing us and reviving us. Continue transforming us, sanctifying us, conforming us more and more into your image, making us vessels of your love.